Okay, if you are uh, following me in your Bible, I'm in 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. And uh, I referred to this passage either last week or the week before uh, when we were talking about worship and um, this is a kind of a, a follow-on from that. We'll be talking a little bit about worship, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff in this passage that is useful for us as well. So 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. In my Bible it says this. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out to the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio The sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the Ark of the Covenant, and Ohio went before the Ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and similar castanets. You don't hear a lot of castanets in worship, do you? Do you think we should be having a castanet workshop or something to... Yeah? Okay. Castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put his hand out to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread and a portion of meat and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. 
And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel. The people of the Lord and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child till the day of her death. Okay. There's a whole bunch of things in here which are going to help us this morning. But let me just give you a little bit of a backdrop to what's going on here. Um, in the preceding verses and uh, chapters, you have um, a situation where Israel goes out to war, and uh, as was their practice, uh, the, they carried the Ark of the Lord in front of the army, because the Ark of the Lord carried the presence of the Lord. It was the, the seat of God. It was where God's presence was on the earth. And so they used to carry that out ahead of the army, and uh, used to win all their battles. Except that they uh, took the uh, Ark of the Covenant out to battle in a way that dishonored God and God caused them to lose that battle and the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. Now the Philistines carried it off. They didn't have a great time with the Ark of the Lord. It created havoc for them and so they uh, they basically got rid of it as quickly as they could and it came to rest at this place wherever it was that we'll come to in a moment. Um, David, uh, in his um, attempts to kind of redress things, is going out to battle again against the Philistines and they're doing it with a much better attitude this time and they're honoring God in all of this. And they manage to drive the Philistines back far enough that they can get to the place where the Ark of the Covenant has come to rest. And so he decides that he will go out with the army and uh, and bring it back. Now, the Ark, um, we've said this before, but it's it's worth... Uh, mentioning again, was very precious and important to Israel. Um, in fact, you can see when it's described there uh, in those verses, the Ark of God, and they don't just call it the Ark of God, they call it the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. In other words, this is the place where Israel meets with God. This is uh, an important, this is not just a historical artifact, but actually this is part of the lifeblood of Israel. This is the place where they meet with God. This is the place where they converse with God. Uh, This is the seat of his authority. It's the centerpiece of corporate worship and is very, very important to them. So David, uh, knowing now that he can get to the place where it is, decides to seize the opportunity and to bring it home. And so he trembles, trembles, assembles an escort to bring it back and to place it in the tabernacle which he has uh, erected in Jerusalem specifically for that purpose. Um, Let me just read those first few verses again from verse 3. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark. Now you might wonder what's going on there. 
Well, why is it? So um, you would think this is a good thing. We're bringing the ark um, back uh, into Israel where it belongs. We're bringing the ark to Jerusalem to put it in a tabernacle where God, the presence of God can then be found amongst his people again and it can be the focal point of our worship and we can have these conversations that we need to have with God again. And so we're bringing it back. You'd think that's a great thing. But then um, our, our, one of the oxen stumbles and poor old Uzzah probably instinctively reaches out to stop the ark from tumbling and as he touches the ark... God gets angry and he strikes Uzzah down dead. Now you might be thinking, nasty God, why did God do that? That doesn't seem fair at all. But you see, we need to understand that where the ark of the Lord was concerned and where the presence of God is concerned. So when I talk about the ark this morning, I want you to think we're talking about the presence of God. Yeah? Where the ark of the Lord is concerned, God had laid down very clear and strict rules and regulations about how it was to be treated. Because that's where his presence was. You did not take liberties with the ark of the Lord. You, you did not treat it as just another religious artifact. This is where the presence of God was. And so God had, in, in his design for the whole thing, had, had designed it with... Um, kind of hoops on the side of the ark which they would put long poles through and and then the ark was to be carried by men and by particular men by um, particular priests okay they they were uh, set aside for the duty of carrying the ark it wasn't to be thrown on the back of a cart it wasn't to be pulled along by oxen but actually this um, untouchable place because it carried the presence of God was supposed to be carried by men in a prescribed way which showed honour, which showed respect and uh, which um, glorified in that sense the presence of God within the ark. And Uzzah would have known this because his father was one of these priests. He would have known all about it. He would have been schooled in all of this. And so... He would have known, even though instinctively he was reaching out to stop the ark from tumbling, he would have done that knowing that actually, first of all, you don't touch the ark. And that's why God was angry. And that's why God struck him down. And the thing that I want us particularly to glean from this this morning is this, that actually you can't just take the presence of the Lord for granted. You can't just treat the presence of God as like a, a, a bolt-on added, you know, nice little thing that comes with our faith. We put our faith in God and so therefore we have his presence and that's okay and, you know, I'll get on with something else now and not kind of think about that or worry about that. But actually the presence of God Uh, is something we should not take for granted. The presence of God is something we should uh, treat with great uh, honor. uh, The presence of God is something that we should treat with great respect. And, you know, it, it would be very easy for us not to do that, and we need to be careful that we don't. And through these verses here about what happens with Uzzah, there is a clear reminder here for us that actually we need to be um, honoring God if we want to be living in his presence. You hear what I'm saying? The presence of God is not something to be trifled with, but actually, goodness me, think about it. You know, the God of the whole universe, the living God, the creator of the world, the creator of you, the one who gives his life to save you because 
you are a sinful person and you're completely unable to save yourself. His presence. Now, if that isn't the most incredible thing to you, then I don't know what would be. That actually you and I can stand in, can touch the manifest presence of the living God. That is an incredible thing. And, and we must never treat that lightly. We must never think of that as just being, you know, well, that's just what happens at church, isn't it? You know, we walk in and we walk into the presence of God. So what? Well, I'll tell you what. Actually, this is a magnificent and incredible thing. And we should treat it as such. Why should we treat it as such? Well, some of the clues to that come in the following verses. So if we pick up again at verse 9, it says this, And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and rightly so. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. Because of the presence of the Lord in the ark, and because the ark came to rest at Obed-Edom's house, Obed-Edom was blessed. Now, why did it, how did it get to Obed-Edom's house? Well, David was clearly worried that because God had been offended, because they had not treated the ark as it should have been treated, or they had not treated the presence of God as he should have been treated... He was worried that if he then carried on to bring the ark into Jerusalem, that calamity might also come upon Jerusalem. That God might be angry with with the whole of Jerusalem because of the way that they had behaved. And so, uh, the safest place that he could get it to was Obed-Edom's house. Now, Obed-Edom, of course, was uh, was a priest. He was a Levite. He was a Korathite Levite, if that's how you pronounce it. And they were the very people who were supposed to carry the ark. They were the very people who were supposed to carry the presence of God. And so the the ark comes to rest in his house, and he is blessed. He is blessed way above the rest. That's almost poetic, that isn't it? I'll say that again. He is blessed way above the rest. That God pours out blessing not just on Obed-Edom, but on everything that has to do with Obed-Edom. His household and, and uh, you know, everything. There for, for three months, um, Obed-Edom is reveling in the incredible outpouring of blessing after blessing from God because the presence of God is residing at his home. Now, that, that's one good reason for being around the presence of God, isn't it? Hello? That if you want to be blessed, then the presence of God is the place to be. If you want things to go well with you, the presence of God is the place to be. If you want life to get sorted out and get on the track of, of uh, you know, becoming everything that God created you to be and doing all the things that God created you to do, then the presence of the Lord is the place to be. There is no other place. That's the place of blessing. It's the place of healing. It's the place of deliverance. It's the place of salvation. It's the place of just about everything that you can think of that is good 
that you could perceive of as being a blessing, it's all found in the presence of God. And that was what was happening at Obed-Edom's house. Because the ark was there, he was getting blessed because he was living in the presence of God. Are you getting this? There's a challenge there, isn't there? And, you know, for us, this is probably an appropriate moment to say this, for us, it's a little different because uh, we no longer have the Ark of the Covenant. We no longer have the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, we no longer have those things. But you see, um, in John chapter 4, where Jesus is having that conversation with the woman at the well, the place of worship moves from a geographical location to a spirit location. Actually, the place of worship moves to my spirit. And as my spirit engages with the Holy Spirit, that's where the worship happens. And that's where the presence of God is found. So you and I become the temple, which is sort of where we started this morning, wasn't it? Being the temple. Uh, you and I become the temple. You and I become the carriers of the presence of God. And so we need to treat that with the respect that it deserves and we need to be honoring God actually with the whole of our lives if we want to live continually with the sense of his manifest presence. Are you with me? Okay. One or two of you are. One or two of you are looking blank at me. Let's see if we can clear that up a little. Let's pick up again at verse 12. So David having heard all of this news about Obed-Edom, went out and brought up the Ark of the Covenant from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the Ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the Ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Now this time... They're doing it right. This time, they've got the right people carrying the ark in the right way. This time, there are sacrifices going on. Um, so, it, it says there, how often did it say? Um, every, where are we? Six steps. Now, I don't want you to think that was too laborious, because it wasn't a massive distance <laughs> from Obed-Edom's house to Jerusalem. But that's some serious sacrificing, isn't it? Hello? Isn't it? That's some serious sacrificing. So they're carrying it in the right way. There is this element of the sacrificial that surrounds it. Um, there is the rejoicing that's right. Now there was re rejoicing in the first attempt, but this rejoicing is different. This rejoicing is is born out of uh, the the presence and the blessing of God, and not born out of we've just given the Philistines a good panning, and aren't we good? Because, you see, one of the problems with the first attempt was that David was there in all his royal regalia with his entourage, you know, uh, with people who were, I would, I would guess, and it's an educated guess, praising him as much as they were praising God because he'd given the Philistines a good kicking and he'd gone and recaptured the ark. And in this second attempt, the successful attempt, all of that is gone. Because David has got rid of all of his royal robes. He's got rid of the entourage. The, the, the whole of uh, Jerusalem has come out to celebrate and rejoice over this. And David is dancing with all his might before the Lord in front of the Ark of the Covenant as it comes back into Jerusalem. There is, 
I think, in that great humility and a clear desire to want to worship and to honour God. Now, I don't want you worrying about this linen ephod thing. Um, I had somebody teach on this once and say, you know, David was in his underwear dancing before the Lord. Um, it's not quite true, okay? So I don't want you to have this image of David in his wife fronts, you know, in, in the dust and the heat and everything. The linen ephod was, was more like, it, it was a priestly garment. It was, it was what priests would wear underneath all of their decorative garments that would, that would kind of come on top of it. And it was more like a kind of a, a, a linen nightgown, if you can imagine that. So he's not half naked before the Lord, but it's still not something that you would do. It's still not kind of the acceptable thing to do in that day, in that time, in public, to be walking around in nothing but your ephod. Okay? So he had stripped himself right down. He had shown incredible humility. And he had shown a great heart for worship. That He, he says he danced with all his strength before the ark of the Lord, before the presence of God, as it was being brought back into Jerusalem. It's an entirely different picture to the first one, isn't it? And it's, it's this second journey with the ark is surrounded by sacrifice and humility and rejoicing. And it sounds like an odd combination, doesn't it, that those three things should go together. Sacrificing, humility and anointing. But actually, it's the perfect combination. That um, if we understand who we are sacrificing for, then actually, uh, whatever sacrifice it is we're making, it should be done with rejoicing. Whatever it is we have to give or give up, whatever it is we have to break or break down, whatever it is we have to do by way of sacrificing, if we understand that it's for the living God, then it can be done with rejoicing. It can be done with joy in our hearts, even though there may be pain in the offering. We know a song about that. Though there's pain in the offering, I'm still going to praise God. I'm still going to be joyful. I'm still going to rejoice because I know that it's a good thing. And, and what I really like about this second journey is that the whole, it seems the whole of the community has come out and got engaged with this. That the whole of Jerusalem you know, has become a part of what's going on, of bringing the ark back into Jerusalem. And my mind starts to run riot with these things because I start to see a way beyond the church although we should be rejoicing at the presence of God. We, we should be pouring ourselves out in worship in the presence of God. But if the presence of God is truly here, and if we are behaving as we should, then the, the power and the goodness and the blessing that the presence of God brings should be spilling out into the whole community, should be touching the whole town. And I believe in some measure that it is. Uh, but I believe it could be so much more. I found myself wondering when I, I was kind of thinking on all of this, I found myself wondering actually what our town would look like if you took the churches out of it. And it would be a pretty dim place and I'm sure it would be much more miserable than it sometimes is. Because although you don't see it, and although it's difficult to measure, the presence of God makes a difference. 
that if the living God, if, if we believe that the living God is, is present with us here this morning in this place, and that he's present with the Baptist church up the road, and that he's present at St. Helens and the Salvation Army and the Pastures and the Pentecostal church on the road and the Methodist church up the road, if we believe that God is present as we worship him, it must make a difference in the community. It must change the atmosphere. It, it must make a positive, it must have a positive effect on the life of this community. And people probably don't recognize that, realize it, probably don't even notice it. But I bet people would notice if it wasn't there. I bet, it, I bet they would. I bet it would make a big difference. I do want to dwell just for a second on this whole thing about dancing in your linen ephod. Now next week we're going to have linen ephods at the door as you come in. Don't forget that David is king. He is the top man. Don't forget that he has seen many victories, that he has, uh, in terms of his leadership, um, uh, now, of course, with the help of God, but in terms of his leadership, has saved Israel on many occasions, that he has brought some righteous rule to Israel, that he has been concerned for the setting up of a, a tabernacle where God can be properly worshipped, that, that, that he actually, he is the man. In that day and in that time, David is the man. And he would have been highly honored and respected and fated. And, you know, everybody, you know, they used to sing songs, you know, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. In other words, Saul was okay, but David, come on. And he, it seems, is not at all worried about stripping away all the glory, all the honor, all the accolades that have been placed on him. He's not worried about what people are going to think or say. He is just concerned for the presence of God. And strips down to a priestly garment and worships God by dancing in front of the ark as it comes back to Jerusalem. Now that is some serious humility. And that is some serious love of God. And it's a challenge to us, isn't it? That actually, uh, we over these last two or three weeks, we've been looking at some of the things that God likes when it comes to worship, the things that he enjoys, the journey into his presence and how all of that works. And there are some challenges for us in terms of unbridling ourselves from all of this stuff that we carry around with us. You know, like worrying about what the person across the aisle is going to think if I suddenly start dancing. Have you seen me dancing? About worrying about what other people might think, you know, if we prostrate ourselves on the floor, face down on the floor in worship before God. Worrying about what other people might think if we uh, want to interject with a, a scripture or a prophetic word or something. Because our, our, we are 
I want to say our egos are so fragile, but actually it's more than just our egos. We are just, we are such fragile people that, um, and our concern is in the wrong place. You know, we are too bothered about what other people think. We are too bothered about what other people might say. We're too bothered about how people might react to us, whether they'll still want to be our friends. We're more bothered about that than we are bothered about the worship of the living God. And David casts all of that off. He gets rid of the, of all the trappings of being king, of being top dog. He gets rid of the entourage. He gets, he just, he's down to his undergarment, his, his linen ephod. And in the dust and the heat of the day, he is pouring himself out as an act of worship and he doesn't care what anybody thinks. And that's the challenge for us. And it's not just a challenge of, you know, what we do on a Sunday morning when we come together. The challenge goes much wider than that. It's a challenge for the whole of our lives. How do we worship God with the whole of our lives? How do you honor God in your workplace? How do you honor God when you're going shopping? How do you, how, how do you bring your life as an act of worship to God in all of those places? You know, in your family. How do you bring your life as an act of worship to God? Are you concerned about that or are you more concerned about what people will think of you and how they will react to you? It's a big challenge, isn't it? But we have to rise up to that challenge. Let me pick up again here because this is something which is also crucially important. Um, I'm at verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Um, Michal was um, David's wife. Uh, She was the daughter of Saul. So Saul, of course, was the previous king who went a bit off the rails. Uh, and um, you know David took over from him and if you read that story there are all sorts of reasons that you could pick out all sorts of bits and pieces that you could pick out that would make Michal unhappy uh, disappointed uh, with her lot and with the way that things had gone Um, she probably didn't have much choice uh, when it came to marrying David uh, my guess is that Saul would have seen that as a good strategic move get David in the family then I can get a bit more control over him so I'll get him married off to Michal she probably wasn't going to get a, a suitor anyway so we'll just you know we'll farm her out to David and uh, it, 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 you know you can see that, that there are probably a lot of reasons there why Michal might not have been happy David had taken over from Saul. He was much more celebrated than her father had been. He was much more fated than her father had been. He'd been much more victorious. And, you know, they sang songs about David. They didn't sing about Saul. Um, And you can see that there would be a lot of space in her life for disappointment and, uh, you know, unhappiness at the way that things had gone. And for Michal, clearly, that disappointment had become resentment that she had held on to those things and, uh, uh, and mulled over them. And, you know, that's what happens, isn't it? That when you're disappointed over something, that when you're not happy with somebody or some situation, that if you hold on to it and you mull it over, that disappointment becomes resentment. And that resentment uh, manifests itself here when she sees David pouring himself out in worship. 
and as David is pouring himself out in worship before the Lord, it triggers that resentment in her, and then they have that conversation later. She despises him for doing it, and then later they have that conversation where she has a go at him and says, you know, you've disgraced yourself today. You've made yourself look a right Charlie in front of the female servants of your servants. What an idiot. And David's response to that, of course, is, well, okay, I understand where you're coming from, but the fact is this, that actually these people that you're talking about will actually feel honored that they saw that and that they were a part of that. And then it says this, it says that Michal had no children for the whole of her life. And her, uh, this is the point that I want you to see here, because why, why does the Bible even mention that because it has something to teach us it teaches us that if we hold on to resentment we become barren that if our attitudes can rob us of life are you hearing me? Michal had obviously got a major attitude issue she'd got major problems with resentment she could not deal with the fact that David was worshipping God in the way that he was and she had a pop at him for worshipping God she had a go at him she tried to undermine his faithfulness in all of that and because of that she was barren the same thing can happen to us spiritually that if we harbour Resentments, if we hold bad attitudes, if we, uh, you know, if we allow ourselves to succumb to those things, that actually it will rob us of life. It will suck the life out of us. I remember reading um, oh, a long time ago uh, a book on all of those sorts of things, and one of the phrases that uh, that was used in the book that really stuck with me was this: it said, "Resentment is like." putting poison in somebody's tea and then drinking it yourself because your resentment doesn't hurt them it hurts you David was not at all uh, undermined by Michal's comments he was not brought down by them because he knew the truth of it and he said actually you've got it wrong actually it's the other way around that these people who've seen me today and be a part of this will be blessed will consider that it's been an honour but Michal who'd got the resentment who'd got the attitude was barren for the rest of her life so let me kind of because we've just a couple of minutes left throw that all together so you can kind of see the threads through that um there are seven very quick things. These are literally one-liners, so don't get worried that I'm going to preach another seven-point sermon. There are seven, which means, of course, that on earth it's perfect. Oh, come on. The first thing is this. This passage has a lot to teach us about the importance of the presence of God. That David uh, and the whole of Israel, in fact, Considered that the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, which for them was the presence of God, was worth chasing after, was worth pursuing, was worth um, bringing back to Jerusalem, was worth making sure that ultimately they did it in absolutely the right way so that God was honored and glorified in it. The presence of God was precious to them. David prized this 
above all things. In fact, when David's going through it and, uh, and he's really making a mess of life, what is the one cry of his heart in the Psalms? It is, take not your Holy Spirit from me. In other words, God, you know, I'm a numpty, I've messed up, life is falling apart, but please, please, above all things, do not take your presence away from me. David prized it above all things. The presence of God is important. Second thing, I've, I've described it like this. Pride comes before a fall. Trusting in your own strength will be a short route to disengaging and losing any sense of the presence of God. Because God wants you to rely on him, to trust him, to do things his way, to stick to his plan. And uh, once we think we know better, you say in that first failed journey they were just doing what the Philistines had done we don't do what the Philistines do we're not Philistines the Philistines thought it was fine to just stick it on the back of a cart hook up a couple of oxen and send it off we are not the Philistines just turn to the person sitting next to you and say you are not a Philistine (laughs) we're not the Philistines we don't live like that we don't behave like that we look to what God says and do it his way and my third point is you know the people who want to sing loudly I did it my way are probably the ones who are in the most trouble you know that um, I have occasion every now and again to have a chat with the people who run the chapels at the Krem and um, you know at the Krem they've got these computers full of music so that when when people ask for weird and wonderful bits of music at funerals you know at, at cremations and what have you um, they've got it there so that it can be played do you know the most requested tune I did it my way seriously seriously people at their funerals want the world to know that they did it their way It's numptyville. You know, if you think you know better than God, God bless you, but you are deluded. Don't do it your way. Do it God's way. David knew that doing it his way could bring calamity on Jerusalem, which is why he stopped the journey. So he could regroup and think it through. And then when he saw the blessing, he picked up the journey again and did it properly, did it God's way. Number four, the presence of God brings blessing to you and yours. If, if we cultivate the presence of God, if we make, make sure that that's important to us, that it's on the top of our list of priorities, that we worship as we should and that we do everything that we know uh, makes God feel comfortable about making his presence felt, there will be blessing. You will be blessed and the people around you will be blessed. Hello? Number five. You see, I did say they'd be quick. When you do things the right way, you can rejoice. Even though it might be painful. Even though the journey might have more twists and turns than you wanted. Even though it tires you out. Even though sometimes it might wreck you. Doing it the right way gives cause for rejoicing. If you do it the right way, you can rejoice. You can be filled with joy. You can be happy. Number six. Extravagant worship brings blessing to the community. That David, in his dancing before the Lord, instigates something that the the um, 
culture of which, if you like, gets replicated in the worship in the tabernacle, that the worship, it builds something extravagant in the worship life of Israel. David's tabernacle is a place of life and freedom and exuberance and excellence and uh, all of those things, of generosity. You know, they, they celebrate the return of the ark and then what does David do? He gives a gift to every member of the community. That, that, that is kind of the natural outpouring, if you like, of this extravagant worship. Extravagant worship blesses a community. Now listen, the people out there may not get this. They may not want to get this. They might think we're just a bunch of raving lunatics and sometimes I think the same. But the more we give ourselves to God in this place, the more we affect the spiritual realm and it affects the whole community. And number seven, last one, bitterness leads to barrenness. That actually, I know that in this journey some of us will struggle. That in this journey some of us will not want to engage in the way that we think we should engage and there will be all sorts of challenges that we'll need to face and hurdles that we'll need to get over and we need to be very, very careful that we maintain a right attitude because bitterness leads to barrenness. If you allow a bad attitude to live in you, if you allow any kind of resentment to live in you, then it will lead to barrenness. It will suck the life out of you. It will do you no good. And so as we, as we covet and as we cultivate together the presence of God, okay, we must, um, we must be sensitive to one another. We must encourage one another. But, you know, if we're finding it difficult, we must not allow a bad attitude to rise up within us. We must do something about that immediately. You know, the best thing to do about that is go and talk to somebody about it and have them pray with you. Did you get that? Shall I say it again? The best thing to do if you feel a bad attitude rising is to go and talk to somebody about it and have them pray with you and make yourself accountable. And keep the slate clean. And then there'll be nothing to hinder you coming into the presence of God. Are you with me? Yes. You know the issue there, I am closing. The issue there has less to do with God and more to do with you. Because this is the truth. God wants you, longs for you to be in his presence. And the only thing that really stops that, the only thing that really prevents that or slows that journey or makes that journey difficult is you and me. And so we have to do everything that we can to make sure that we're in the right place so that we don't have stuff clogging our thinking, so that we don't, um, we're not condemning ourselves, so that we're not judging ourselves, so that we're not beating ourselves up, but so that we can come understanding that God loves us, understanding the measure of his grace towards us, that we can come into his presence because of Jesus and we can meet with him face to face and we can know him. Are you with me? And so we must make sure that nothing gets in the way of that. Nothing clogs our hearts, our spirits. Nothing clogs our thinking that would prevent us from doing that. Because I tell you, God stands there with his arms wide open waiting for you.
all the time not just on a Sunday morning he stands there waiting for you and the invitation from him is to come let's stand we'll pray then we'll go and have some coffee